Happy Mother's Day, right? Yes. Maybe we should call it I'm Sorry Day. Hmm. Whatever. It's going to be, it's a good day. It's been a good day already. Well, I don't happen to be one of the pastors on staff at New Life Assembly. Most of the time when somebody gets up here, they say, I'm one of the pastors on staff at New Life Assembly. I'm not. I happen to be married to one of the pastors on staff at New Life Assembly. So here I am sharing with you on Mother's Day. For 33-plus years, you have loved our family. And for that, I thank you. There is really no way to express how much your love and your acceptance, your support, your encouragement has meant, meant to us. And I thank you for that. And as, as we start off today on Mother's Day, I pray that you do have a truly blessed Mother's Day. And um, as, as I begin, that's what I want to do. I just want to start with a word of prayer. Father, I do thank you for every single person who's here. Today, I especially thank you for the mothers who are here among us. Father, I pray that this day will be a day of encouragement to them a day of understanding your love for them in a new and a fresh way. Regardless of the circumstances of their life, your love remains the same, and I thank you for that. Today we look to you, Jesus, to just illumine our minds with what you have to say to us as individuals. Um, it's not just a carte blanche but it is something that you will speak individually to each person who's here, and I thank you for that. Amen. I have read the book, Poe Buddies Nerfic, to all of my grandchildren. Abby, Ashton, Carly, Cassidy, Josh, Levi, Isaac, and even little baby Elijah. It's a story of a little calf. His name is Farley. And Farley was born with colored spots. And he didn't like the fact that he had colored spots and all the other calves were black and white. His mother always tried to reassure him in her own less than perfect way. Farley, you're just fine the way you are. He, Pappy, just the way you are. You're really wonderful. But Farley just could not quite get that in his head. Well, one day... He saw down by the pond a frog playing in the mud. And the mud, the frog was covered with mud. And so Farley thought, I have an idea. I'm going to roll in the mud. I am going to cover all my colored spots up with mud. And so he did just that. He rolled in the mud until he was covered with mud. And then he went running off to the meadow to see the other calves. Well, by the time he got to the meadow, it was sprinkling. And pretty soon it was pouring down rain. And as you can imagine, soon the mud had washed off of his back. Well, to his surprise, when the other calves saw him, they go, Farley's back. I see his blue spots. I see his red spots. I see his orange spots. Farley, we're so glad you're here because you brighten our day. As, Farley, as the little story ends, Farley finds out that he is happy the way he was made because 
After all, Pobuddies nerficked. Now, just a moment. What about Eve? Eve was the finishing touch of God's creation. She was fashioned directly by the creator himself, not made of a handful of dust, but she was made of living flesh and bone. God composed a vast universe out of nothing, Adam out of a handful of dust, but Eve out of a handful of Adam. Eve entered into this sin-free, curse-free world. It didn't have any disease. It had no defect. It was unspoiled by any imperfection. Eve must have been magnificent. In fact, could we even say that there is no woman who had the charm, the grace, the virtue, the radiance, the innocence of Eve? Well, actually, we don't know. Because there is very little said about Eve's life, if you think about it. We know she was the mother of all living. We don't know any detail about her physically, except we do know that everything God created was good. In fact, it was very good. We don't know how many children she had. We do not know how she died or when she died. The scripture does help us to focus on something that is very important about Eve. And that is her role to her husband and her duty to her creator. Now, when we think about where Eve lived, though, she lived in paradise. She lived in this incredible garden, this beautiful garden, this perfect garden. And she was surrounded by beautiful creatures. Her food was provided for her. Just think about it. Your food is ripe for the plucking. Hmm, that means no cooking and no dishes. Ooh. And then they didn't wear clothes. Well, you know what that means, women? No laundry. So if you think about it, you've got no dishes, oops, no cooking, no dishes, and no laundry. My goodness, that has to be perfect, doesn't it? Oh, gracious. Well, she was also the source of satisfaction for her husband, and her husband adored her. So could we say that she was perfect? The serpent enters. Most likely, Satan's fall came somewhere between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. In Genesis chapter 1, God created the whole world. Everything was good. It was very good. Chapter 2, God created Eve. Chapter 3, the temptation takes place. You know, in the innocent bliss of Eden, Eve was not even aware that any danger existed. Though there is a lot surrounding the whole temptation saga, Right in the middle of chapter 3, verse 5, is the lie of all lies. Satan said to Eve, you will be like God, our perfect God. Eating the fruit did not make Eve like God. It made her corrupt, it made her condemned, and it made her fallen. 
Unfortunately, as we know, Eve listened and obeyed. Now, listening wasn't the disobedience. Listening to a viewpoint that's contrary to God's word put Eve on a slippery slope that led to disobedience. In verse 6, the very next verse of chapter 3, it says, She saw the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Eve wanted more. Can you believe that? In this perfect place, she wanted more. She, wanted, she was not content with what God had given her. And then I have to look at myself, and I have to say to myself, am I content with what God has given me? There is a warning in, in God's word back in the New Testament, 1 John 2.16, and I think it speaks directly to every single one of us today. It says, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but they are from this world. So we look askance at Eve and go, you had everything, and you blew it. And yet look at the warning that God has given us. And sometimes what we do with it. Well, the serpent was right about one thing. Eating the fruit did open Eve's eyes so she knew good from evil. In that moment, paradise and perfection was gone. That's where you and I live. We live in a sin-filled, sin-cursed world. But this is what I love about God. There is a ray of hope. Right in the midst of this whole ugly thing, there's a ray of hope, and it's a bright ray of hope. And it gives promise to you and I, because in the midst of what Eve did, what did God in his incredible nature, his redeeming nature do? What did he do? He said to her, your seed will bruise Satan's head. God did not... Give up on Eve. In the the midst of darkness, there is a promise. And I don't know what your life has today. I don't know what you are facing. But believe me, because of God, there is promise. Because of his nature, and that nature has not changed. It is still the same today. We're going to leap ahead now about 2,000 years, and we're going to look at another woman in the Bible. This woman is in the New Testament. Her name is Mary Magdalene. Mary's life also has a lot of silence to it. We don't know a lot about her. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of personal detail about her life or her past. But one thing we do know is that there was darkness in her past. The Bible does not say that there is anything immoral about Mary Magdalene, although writers and legends like to sensationalize her in that way. One thing we do know is that Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, it says, After this, Jesus traveled from one town 
and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who were cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Mary Magdalene came from the village of Magdala. Her name, Mary Magdalene, is used to distinguish her from all the other Marys of the Bible. Obviously, Mary was a popular name in Bible days. So just think of it. For example, Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of James. There, there is just a lot of Marys. Mary Magdalene was a tormented person. It was common in Bible days that those who were demon-possessed suffered at the hands of those evil spirits. They were miserable. They were sorrowful. They were lonely. They were heartsick. That it, it was just a miserable, miserable existence. They actually were regarded as outcasts, victims of ruined lives. You know, Mary could have suffered from depression, anxiety, loneliness, self-hatred, terrible fear. But you know what? She could have suffered much worse. She could have suffered from blindness or deafness or insanity because those were common disorders that were associated with demonic possession. Whatever the details, we know she was in agony. And in her case, seven kinds of agony, seven demons resided within her Demonics in the Bible, or still today, were basically friendless people, unless there happened to be a devoted family member who cared for them. But mostly, they led a very lonely life. They were also perpetually restless because of what was happening inside of them, that torment that went on and on. And if you think about Mary with seven demons residing inside of her, She could have been regarded as an unrecoverable lunatic. Well, even how she is delivered isn't spelled out for us. But one thing we do know is that Christ set her free, and free she was. After Mary was delivered, Jesus, um, after she, after Mary was delivered, she joined Jesus in that close circle of disciples that followed him on his journeys. And we saw that in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. We also saw in that passage that Luke connects Mary with Jesus prior to the crucifixion. Now, these women obviously devoted their lives to Jesus. What about family responsibilities? How did, how did that work? Well, just as I explained to you in Mary's case, it's, it could be pretty obvious that if she had been deserted by her family, she had no family responsibilities. Most importantly, as we look at Mary's life, we see her as a devoted follower of Jesus. Even when others forsook him, even when fear overtook them and they ran away, Mary did not. She followed him to the cross. She followed him beyond the cross. Matthew, Mark, and John all record her as being present at the crucifixion. She never left until the bitter end. 
Mary was drawn to Jesus. Her loyalty, her love for Christ is shown in how she responded to Jesus. She responded past the cross. She responded as she went to the tomb. In Mark 15, 46 and 47, it says, So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, placed it in the tomb, cut out of the rock. He rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. It was thanks to Mary that the disciples knew where Jesus' body was. She was the one who followed him clear to the grave. She was determined to wash and anoint his body. She wanted to do it properly, so she waited up until after the Sabbath, began to prepare the spices, and then she went to the tomb. First thing in the morning, what they had planned to do was to give Jesus a burial worthy of somebody they loved so deeply. And her devotion was about to be rewarded in an unimaginable way. Now, I really sincerely believe that Mary did not think at all about a resurrection. All she was doing was giving her life in devotion and love to Jesus. You know, there's a lot of interesting details about the resurrection. But let's just leave it very briefly to say that Mary went to the tomb She ran to tell the disciples. She came back. She wept over the loss. She talked to the angels. And then she had this encounter with Jesus. And in John chapter 20, verses 14 to 16, it said, Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And she didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him. I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she cried out, Rabboni. Two stories, two women. Eve and Mary Magdalene, so completely different Eve, utter perfection, until she was deceived. Mary Magdalene, unbelievable imperfection, until she met Jesus. We can put the spectrum like this, and and it can go bigger than that. And that is how opposite those two women were. One on one end, one on the other. And where does that leave us today? What about your story? What about my story? Our stories are different. They're as varied and unique as you are and I am. But just wander down this path with me just for a moment. I remember when I was first married. Bob, I know he's wonderful. but he completely forgot my birthday. Not once, twice. I can't remember because I think I blocked it out. And maybe three times. And people said to me, why don't you give him a broad hint? 
Well, you know what? That never occurred to me. I never had to remind my mother. <laughs> my life was not perfect. My husband was flawed. <laughs> but you know what? He's definitely outgrown that flaw. He starts two months in advance now. It's like I haven't even thought about it. And he's like, what do you want for your birthday? You know what? I also found that my yard grew weeds. My house grew dust. My sweet little girls were naughty. My body grew pounds. My skin grew wrinkles. I said things I wished I could take back. Perfection? It was out of my reach. How about you? Is perfection attainable? Why is it that we keep hoping? You know, when I was thinking about today... I did this little online survey. It's, it, it is not professional by any means. Nothing, I don't even know how accurate it would be. But you know what it did do? It answered the question that I had in my mind. And I started off with it. I sent out this little survey just to people I know across the United States, people in Kearney, people at New Life. And um, the first question I asked on the little survey was, do you struggle with perfectionism in any area of your life? And I would say, just, um, again, it's not an accuracy thing or anything, but I would say that 95% of those who responded said yes. And then the next question was, what are the greatest areas of struggle in your perfectionism? These are some of the answers I received. My husband, children, jobs, friendship, appearance, relationship with God, getting enough done. And to cap it off, here was the bell ringer answer. All areas, seriously, all areas. Well, the next question was, do you fear failure? And again, about, I would say, 90 to 95% said, yes, I fear failure. But here was the interesting thing. It didn't have to do particularly with them, because as I put all the answers together and crunched them together, it came down to what areas do you feel failure? Disappointing or failing the ones I love. Doesn't that sound like a mother? And then... The last question on the survey was, do you believe you can accomplish perfection? Again, as you boiled all the answers down, it came to a simple answer that one person put on their survey, no, but I still try to. That answer is the crux of where we as women, men, students, children, humans That is where we are. Can we accomplish perfection? No, but I still try. And as we continue to try, we find ourselves frazzled, exhausted, burned out, overwhelmed, confused, frustrated, discouraged, lonely, depressed, and even sometimes suicidal. And so I ask myself the question, is this the life that we're looking for? Is perfection honestly worth pursuing? 
In the book, Search for Significance, which, by the way, has been a great book in my life, there is a quote, false belief. I must meet certain standards to feel good about myself. Some of us become slaves to perfection, driving ourselves incessantly toward attaining goals. Perfectionism is the unwillingness in each of us to fail. What does this do? You know what? To me, it takes away the joy of life. It takes away the creativity of life. We focus on areas that we struggle with or areas that we've already failed in. Life was given to us to embrace, to explore, to experiment, to love, and to enjoy. Life is great, and that is what God intended for it to be. But we find ourselves instead that we want to be in control, and so we put ourselves in these little boxes where we know we're not going to make a mistake or not fail. You know, our biggest struggle is not in doing things well. It's basing our worth on what we do and how we perform. You know what? I believe with all my heart that what we do, we should do well. In fact, it's biblical because Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Working at something with all your heart is not slavery. It is a gift of love. It's a gift of love to whomever you're doing it. It could be your husband. It could be your wife. It could be your children. It could be taking care of your body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It could be serving in your church. It could be and should be loving the Lord, your God, with all. Listening to his whispers and obeying his whispers. And as we do that, I believe we find ourselves free. Free from that box that we put ourselves in. But you know what? We still revert back and we become this Eve wannabe. And perfectionism, you name it, we struggle with it. I made already a huge list of all the things we struggle with. And let's cap it all off with that one statement. What areas do you struggle with? All areas. Seriously, all areas. It doesn't matter. You can, you can list it till you're blue in the face and you're gonna, someone's going to struggle with it. We did not come into the world as Eve did. She came into this world perfect, and we did not. We were born into a sin-filled, cursed world. So can we accomplish perfection? That's the question of today. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verse 48, Jesus gave us these words. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's, I think, our hang-up, especially as Christians. Besides our human inclination to want to be perfect, Now, Jesus told us to be perfect. 
Well, what I found was that surrounded on either side of those words, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, was a list of behaviors. You look at it yourself. Murder, adultery, divorce, making promises, loving your enemies, giving, praying, fasting, worrying, judging. Oh, my. I am more confused now than ever because so how I perform is important. All those behaviors he listed, and he went into great detail on some of them, those are important. I I am so confused. Or is it confusing? Because as we go back to Matthew at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does not start off with a list of behaviors. Before he ever got to the list of behaviors, he started off his sermon with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Those who, the meek, those who hunger for righteousness, the pure in heart, the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers and the persecuted. He did not start off with behaviors. He started off with matters of the heart, the condition of the heart, the wellspring of all we are and all we do. Blessed are the pure in heart, people of integrity, of a single-minded commitment to God, And that is where today I see Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene had a heart that belonged to Jesus. Her devotion to Christ was obvious. We see it all over. From the moment she was delivered, we see how her heart longed for him. She was the first one to see Jesus after he rose from the dead, though others heard about it from the angel. Mary saw him herself. She saw for herself that he was alive and well. It's her legacy. We can't take it from her. But we should and could seek to follow her example. We can imitate that love that she exemplified for us. Her love for Christ was extravagant. Long before Mary Magdalene was alive, these words were written in Second Chronicles. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. That was true for Mary. It is true for you. It is true for me. He is there to strengthen us as our hearts are committed to him. Our life here is not going to be trouble-free It's not going to be perfect. There's going to be accidents. There's going to be mistakes. There's going to be difficult and painful marriages. There's going to be financial losses. There's going to be tears at graves. There's going to be, oh God, please don't let it be, diagnosis from doctors. Mary Magdalene's life was deeply troubled. Can you imagine being possessed by seven demons? But Mary was changed to a life that showed a single-minded commitment to God. 
She then lived with freedom and contentment, stability and peace. Her heart was captivated by her Lord and Savior. Her life wasn't perfect. I doubt that her life was perfect afterwards, but it was Christ-centered. She ran after Jesus. Today, I am sharing with you for the last time as your pastor's wife. I am not just a pastor's wife. I am also a mother. And so my mother's heart beats loudly within me. For years, a verse that has been, that has really said the deepest desire of my heart for my children and my grandchildren and eventually my great-grandchildren is 3 John, verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And I want you to know today that that isn't something that is just for my children and grandchildren. That is something from from my heart that I say to you. I have no greater joy than to hear when you walk in the truth when you are walking in the truth, when you are running in the truth, I have no greater joy. More importantly than my heart, it's God's heart for you. It's his desire for you. Remember, it's not that you become perfect, but that your heart and your desire for him is strong and committed that you are willing to run after him with all of your might. You know, our lives as a church body will soon be altered in an amazing God-ordained way. No man, and I mean that, no man could have created what we are experiencing as a church family. You're going to hear more about that next week as Bob and Jeff share their stories. But for me, this transition, though I didn't always understand it completely, has one more time taught me that I serve a God who can be trusted with every fiber of my being, every fiber of who I am. There is not one thing, there is not one person, there is not one emotion that I cannot entrust to my Heavenly Father. Do you know what? I don't know what I'm going to be experiencing in the days ahead. But you know what? I can look at every one of you in the eye. And I can say, you don't know what you're going to be experiencing tomorrow. But you know what? The key is that we can trust God with our today and our tomorrow. And now I can say that for you, And for me, I'm excited for what lies ahead because I don't control it. But the God I trust does control it. There's a prayer in 1 Chronicles 29. It's David's prayer to his people of Israel. And as I read it, 
I was just overwhelmed at the beauty of this prayer. It says in this in his prayer, and it, this is just two verses out of the whole thing, but but they are just so so beautiful. I know, my God, that you test the heart. Do you notice there? Do you notice that word, heart? You test the heart, not the behavior. I know, my God, you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I have given willingly and with honest intent. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. What I have given to God through my years at New Life has been given willingly and with honest intent. But I have seen with joy what you have given. I pray your desire for Christ remains strong, your hearts loyal. I pray that your love for him grows stronger and your loyalty becomes even deeper. I don't see you or myself becoming perfect with flawless or faultless behavior. But what I do see is I see a church body, individuals, mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, students, children. I see you striving to develop the character, the holiness, the love that brings honor and glory to our Lord and Savior. It's true. Poe buddies, perfect. But I sense... I deeply sense that you are running after Jesus as Mary Magdalene did. Now, some of you may just be in the starting block. Some of you may be needing to pick up your pace a little bit. Some of you may be walking. And it's okay. It's okay as long as you're moving forward. But I want to see you running after Jesus as Mary Magdalene did. Mary's love knew no limits. Your life, your love, is an offering of the imperfect. But it is the awareness of the imperfection inside of you that makes you run after Jesus, our perfect example. Today, as we close, I want you to know that my heart is filled with appreciation and gratitude for you. I love you. I love your hearts. And if I could say anything to you today, I want you to just remember those words, run after Jesus. 
Lay aside the weights of imperfection and just run after Jesus. Now, how we end this today doesn't really matter to me. You know what? It's, oh, it is totally between you and God. If you want to come down to the altar, I love the altar. If you want to come down to the altar and just in acknowledgement say, I'm pouring my heart out to God, you go for it. If you want to put your arms around your family and just hold them tight and pray for them, you do it. We'll have prayer teams in the back. And I want you to know if you need to have prayer with someone, they are there to, to pray with you. So it doesn't matter. But as the worship team comes and as we close, I just want you to know that you have the freedom to respond in however, however God is calling you. The most important thing is that you listen to him and you do what he is telling you to do. If you have never given your life to Jesus, if you are still in that starting block, then you respond to him and let him work inside of you. Let him cleanse you. Let him free you as Mary Magdalene did. So before we, just before the worship team begins to lead us in some wonderful songs, let's just bow our heads and ask God to minister to us. Father, I thank you this morning for this incredible church. I thank you for their love for you. And God, I just ask that your blessing, your empowerment be upon them. And God, in whatever way they choose to respond to you today, Father, I just pray it's from the depths of their heart, acknowledging that they're not perfect and they're not going to become perfect, but they will run after you, the perfect example. So Father, today, we lay our lives before you one more time thanking you for who you are, for drawing us to yourself.